0: Amen. Let's, uh, let's take our Bibles this morning for a time in God's Word together. Let's, uh, let's turn together to the Gospel according to John. And let's uh, focus in on verse 14. Uh, verse 14 will be the text under examination. And The title of today's sermon, if I had to put a title to it, would be the everlasting gift, the everlasting gift. Now, it seems this morning there is a bit of a sombering atmosphere, an atmosphere of tuning down just a a little bit, which I think is important for us to do. I do hope and pray that everyone did have a wonderful Christ-centered Christmas, and I pray that you are here today ready to hear from the Word of the Lord. Somewhere, every year, somewhere across the world, the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus is read from the Holy Scriptures. Every year, somewhere in the world, Christmas carols are are sung whether in a church service or Christmas caroling or maybe even those that are secular or Christ-centered. Every year somewhere in the world once the hustle and the bustle of the season is over there's a sigh of relief. There's a sense of I'm glad that is over, but I submit to you, if that is how we have approached the celebration of our Lord, maybe our our priorities are at odds with the true meaning of the season. I find myself in this same situation, the hustle and bustle is over, I'm I'm ready to take down the Christmas tree, in fact, today, ready to put up all the stuff that would remind me of all the trappings of Christmas, if you will, but then I have to remember that my priorities are at odds with the true meaning of the season, if that is my sense of what it's all about. So today I want to speak to you of what it's all about. And remind us, last week I woke up to a broadcast of David Jeremiah. Now, I don't necessarily tune in to David Jeremiah much on the television, uh, but I had the TV on and I woke up and there was a broadcast of David Jeremiah. And this particular broadcast was a Christmas special. Maybe you may have seen that on, on television. It was a Christmas broadcast. and David Jeremiah had this to say. Of the commercialism of Christmas. Dr. David Jeremiah said Christmas can be a maze of commercialism if we let it. Instead let's make it a moment of clarity in which we view our sometimes confusing and threatening world against the backdrop of God's gift to us. The Prince of Peace who was announced by angels on that original midnight clear. Today, we have lit the candle that represents that of the coming of Christ. And Last week, we lit the candle of that of of peace. And there is an understanding from a child of God that in the scheme of the world we live in, that there will be no true... An everlasting peace unless it come through the prince of peace so we are reminded of this often we have gone through quite a bit as a church body over we're well, coming up on a two-year span of working through a uh, a worldwide crisis if you will we have worked through a pandemic the Lord has been faithful, amen? God has been faithful. We have worked through the death of loved ones who are near and dear to us in a church body, working through that together. People working through illnesses and adversity. And through it all, the Lord Jesus pursues us to be near to Him. That is what the incarnation is really about that we can be near to the Savior. The Incarnation makes this possible. The fact that our Lord came to dwell with us not only at His birth, His death, but also His resurrection. I submit to you there is no greater verse that exists in scripture that demonstrates God's closeness to us than that of John 1 and verse 14. So I'll ask you, if you will, in this moment of somber worship to our Lord, if you will stand with me as we read God's holy word. Let's stand together. Our Bibles turn to John chapter 1. I will be reading the first five verses and then we will focus on verse 14. The Word of the Lord says in John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, or your Bible might say comprehended it not. Now, if you will notice from verse 6 all the way down to verse 13, you'll find there's an interjection of John the baptizer. But Then John picks up in verse 14, saying, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and Truth, Lord, we ask you, speak to us today through your word. If there is one here who is struggling with their walk with you, God. I pray that today you will be that ever present, close Savior to them, Father. If there is one here who has never, never asked for forgiveness of their sins, Lord, I pray today would be that day. Only you know. It is your will, it is your sovereign will, God, who you will save. Today we pray that you will draw someone to yourself today who has never asked for forgiveness of sin. Lord, I pray that the Savior will be exalted, I will be hid behind the shadow of the cross, Lord, and the church will be edified through your word. And I pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Word became flesh. If I were to recount the times over church history, from the early church fathers, all into our present day, if I were to reflect upon the early magisterial reformers, if I was to reflect upon John Calvin, if I was to reflect upon Martin Luther, if I was to reflect upon Charles Spurgeon or any expositor over the years, and if I was to try to recount the times that this verse had been preached upon over the years, I would be absolutely amazed, and so would you. See, the introduction that I read, these first few verses, that I just read in the book, the gospel according to John, in this introduction, is often called the prologue of John. In fact, uh, students of God's word, theologians and expositors, if I was to say to them, turn to the prologue in the gospel, and they would turn to the prologue, In the Gospel according to John. Remember last week when I had spoke of desiring the meat of God's Word? Remember I said that last week? Remember when I said to, uh, in theological terms, to desire the meat and potatoes of God's Word? Well, this is some meat in God's Word. Found in the prologue here, this is some meat and potatoes of biblical teaching and theology and understanding Who Jesus is this is so important of understanding the nature the person and the work of Jesus in fact the prologue of John's gospel is so robust with rich theological truth that one can come away come away with uh, with it full of the glory and to give glory to Christ as the word now I'm not sure sure about you I'm not sure about where you are with the Lord. I'm not sure where you are with your walk with Jesus. But I believe it is time for the church as a whole to pull up to the table of God's Word and get full, to feast on God's Word. So let's look a little closer at these first five verses. And then we're going to jump to verse 14 as our key text. Now John is going to unpack where he's going to set before his reader and worshiper this persuasive language that Jesus is the Word that he's speaking of, the Logos here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is amazing to me, for students of God's Word, how God's Word is not to be read in a vacuum or in isolation from the rest of Scripture. We often use this mantra that Scripture interprets Scripture, and I believe that 100%. And if I was to take John chapter 1 and verse 1, it is amazing to me how this sounds so familiar to Genesis 1:1 that says, in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and if i was to fast forward to first john chapter 1 and if i was to look at verse 1 in that same letter it is amazing to me almost coming close to the closing of the canon of scripture in that letter where first john 1 and 1 says that which was from the Beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our hands, and we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And so I would submit to you that if there was three verses that stitched the Bible together, exalting Christ, these are three primary verses here. Stitching God's word together as a whole. But what does it mean? When it says, in the beginning was was the Word. Well, you have in your Bible, hopefully before you, these verses. You will notice in your copy of God's Word, in your copy of the Scripture, that there is the word for Word in your Bible. And if you are reading a... ESV or King James Version of the Bible or New American Standard or whatever translation you are reading, you should notice that the word for word is capitalized, is it? And as it is capitalized, the interpreters of, the translators of this language from Greek to English is letting us know that this is signifying divinity. That whoever this word is speaking of, it is speaking of the divine. In fact, the word that is used in the Greek is the word, and you may have heard this before, the word logos. This is where we get our word for logic, pointing towards reason. Reason and logic. And so we can truly say, because of the word, that he is... The reason for the season. You hear that? You hear people throw that around quite a bit, don't we? He's the reason for the season. But is He, is he the reason just for the season? Now, I, I, I get the, the gist of it. We want people to appropriately think about what the Christmas season is about, right? We want people to, to, to think rightly about, about Christmas and the Advent and the coming of our Lord As a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger, we want people to think rightly. So we would say, we celebrate Christmas, we know the reason for the season, don't we? But I'll submit to you that it is so much more about Christmas and the reason for the season. The Word was present at creation. The very meaning of creation... And the very purpose for creation itself is Jesus. He's the very reason, the very logic for the creation of not only the earth, but the world around us. All creation surrounds the person of Christ. And John will build upon this argument that Jesus is divine. And there's a little section of the testimony of John the Baptizer that we find from verse. What do we find there from, uh, in verse 19? Speaking of the testimony of John the baptizer. And then a man came who is John the baptizer. And then we will find in verse 17 where there is the name of Jesus that is dropped in by John the evangelist Here is as if to say, Oh yeah, God has come to tabernacle among us to live with us, to be close to us, and his name is Jesus. The Southern Baptists have a document, if you will, that kind of systematically spells out what we believe as an association of Southern Baptists, and this document or this uh, this piece of work is called the Southern the uh, the Baptist Faith and Message, and there's many many uh, editions of this, and you may have heard of this, the uh, Baptist Faith and Message. I hope you have. In particular, the Baptist uh, Faith and Message 2000 states this of the Son of God. It says, Christ is the eternal Son of God. In His incarnation as Jesus Christ, He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon Himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying Himself completely with mankind here it is, yet without sin. John reminds the reader, the worshipper, in verse 2, he also reminds them that He was in the beginning with God. So now we know that John, as he's talking about the Word, is talking about a person. So if a person was to just to pick this up in the, the, the ancient day, when, the, uh, when you had scribes who would write this out, and a person who had no uh, background in, in being uh, associated with Christ or the church, and they would pick this up and they would be, well, who is he talking about? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is Who is John talking about? And they would read the next verse. He was in the beginning with God. So he's talking about someone. He was in the beginning with God. And it is interesting that this phrase, he was, can be translated with the expression the same, or to say this, he existed in the beginning with God. Now there is no wiggling around this verse as our Jehovah Witness uh, people, I don't know if you want to call them friends or not, um, would say that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was a God? No, that doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that. It says that He existed in the beginning with God. And so He ties together into one phrase these two verses, two ideas already stated separately. These two verses, one idea, well, two ideas in one sentence can be this. In the beginning, He was with God, and afterwards, in time, he came to be with man. He came to dwell with with us. Now, John shifts from the object of creation to the purpose of the Word made flesh. We find in verse 3 that all things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And by the way, all things simply are not just things on earth. All right, when it says all things, it's not just simply talking about the earth that we walk upon or the trees that we see or the air that we breathe. No, it is all things, the world, the universe, the galaxies itself, the Milky Way, whatever. When you look at up to the sky, when you look out into the heavens and you see the stars, keep in mind all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The whole cosmos, the whole world, the whole universe. The universe was made through him and by him. Again, the reason for creation is Jesus. We know that all things beside God were made, and all things that were made were made by God. 17th century theologian by the name of John Eros Smith said this of God the son he said ask the son if ever it were without its beams ask the foundation if ever it were without its streams so god was never without his son and it, then we are reminded by the apostle paul in, in Colossians 1.15 that says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So, my friends, nothing on earth, good or bad, catches God by surprise. Amen? Everything. Everything filters through the sovereign hand of our God from creation to the very situations in life that we live in right at this moment. In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And I must submit to you in a In a world that seems to be full of darkness, Jesus brought light. Now what does it mean to bring light? It means to bring revelation. It means to bring uh, understanding. Shining a light onto something that was at one point not understood. Of course, this could be speaking of spiritual darkness as well. Being in the presence of, of sin and brokenness. Not knowing how to be redeemed. Not knowing how. To find favor in the eyes of a God that demands holiness. And Jesus will reveal this action, if you will, of justification. It is pointing to the consummation of all things. Not just in the past, in the present, but also in the future. And When I say consummation of all things, I'm looking down into the future. But the Bible tells me that in Revelation 21, and verse 5, where it is said of the Lord that He is making all things new. So it is a pointing down to the years of history and saying that one day this world is not going to be what it is now, but our Lord will come and rectify the wrong, make what is wrong and make it right and set it right. And So we are longing for that day when we will say the consummation of all things. And you know this broken apart world, this unraveled world that we live in, Jesus will set it once again on the right path. Now, in verse 5 it says, The light shined. What did the, dark, what did the light do? It shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I remember this past, this past week, and it was about, the Lord, no, it was about 5.30, 5.45, early in the morning. And I was heading across the bridge. Big body of water. And I look out over to my left, and I see this really faint light shining right off the bank somewhere. I mean, you could barely see it. But it was a light, and it was probably, I would say, 400 yards away, maybe, three, 400 yards away. A little flashlight, I will see this little flashlight scouring out on the bank somewhere, looking for whatever, I don't know. Maybe they're moonshiners, I don't know. But it's little teeny light. And you know that expression that it is darkest right before the dawn? And it kind of come to my mind. And I'm thinking about this real little teeny light, and this verse come to my mind. That even the smallest light can penetrate through the dark. It's made me think of this verse and the glory of who Christ is shining in such a way that reveals darkness and sin, reveals who we are in light of Him, reveals whether or not we are in our sin or whether we are justified in Him. Likewise, the light shines on the darkness and the darkness has never put it out. So John's thought is this, that there is a struggle between light and darkness, and there has been ever since the fall, and that light was victorious through our Lord. The darkness did not overcome the light or surpass it. And the whole phrase is perplexing. It is an enigma in a way, because at this present time in the world, the light does not banish the darkness. And the darkness does not overpower the light, meaning that the light and darkness coexist in the world side by side. Evil and good exist today side by side. Can you explain why? Now, if you're looking at me to explain all the ins and outs of why evil exists today, that's another sermon for another day. In fact, that is on the topic of suffering and evil in the world and the part that they play in the scheme of this world. And for whatever reason, darkness and light exist side by side. And I would add the disclaimer, for now, for now. The following section of Scripture, John gives a description of John the Baptizer, who in this sense was, in some way, as a forerunner to Jesus, a light to those in, in Jerusalem, crying out for them to repent. So in a way, he was a beacon calling people to repent, a forerunner for a Messiah or a prophet who helped prepare the hearts and people to receive their Messiah. And then once John the, Baptist, or John the Baptizer has set the stage for the preparation of the Lord Jesus to enter into the scene, he writes these words in verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, speaking of the divinity of Jesus, John 14 is of high importance. This is the truth that could not be stated about God until this point in history. God had dwelled with His people, sure. He was a pillar by fire in the nighttime In a cloud in the day, leading his people through the wilderness, he dwelt with his people in the makeshift tabernacle, if you will, this traveling tabernacle. He dwelt with his people in the temple as they would come and worship. But never in history had God dwelled with his people like we see in the incarnation. Until the babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes, we could not say that God himself dwelled or tabernacled among us. In a physical way. And so the language that John uses is a tipping of the hat back to when God instructed Moses to make a tabernacle, to make this tabernacle for God to dwell with his people as they journeyed through the wilderness. Remember when we worked through Leviticus? Remember what we said as we worked through the book of Leviticus? that all of the instruction given by God to make this tabernacle so that God would be able to dwell with his people there in that tabernacle but then would direct them to what it means to rightfully worship God what does it mean for right worship and so he uses this language of tipping of the hat back to when God tabernacled with his people they traveled through the wilderness he gave them detailed instruction for this tabernacle The pattern had to be a certain way. The furniture had to be certain dimensions. And by his design, every item and instruction, even the outside of the temple and the stakes and how far they were apart, had to be certain dimensions. And every item and instruction in that temple had historical and spiritual significance, pointing the people towards right worship. So if you think about it, not only is Jesus the reason for creation itself, but in the Incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling with his creation, God coming to dwell with us through the person of Jesus is also pointing us towards right worship. You know how, you know how mind-boggling it is to go into a church, and there are some that I have visited, and I, went, I would go into this church, And the name of Jesus was never pronounced. Never pronounced. Amazing to me how a a church could call itself a church and Christ not be the centerpiece. Exodus 25, verse 8. The instruction of the Lord, Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle as for all its furniture, so you shall make it. And by the way, the tabernacle and all the furniture was not so much about the furniture itself, but was about the obedience of the people to make furniture and to say this is consecrated to God and to get their heart and mind ready to worship. So it wasn't so much about the chairs, it wasn't so much about the communion table, it wasn't about the steps on the altar, it wasn't about the, about, about the pews, it wasn't about the red carpet, it's not about the eggshell, eggshell paint on the wall, it's not about the sand panels, or the screen above our head, or, or anything that we see in here. It is about the centerpiece of worship, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. And since the coming of God, dwelling with His people through Jesus of Nazareth, the once veiled glory of God is now apparent to all the known world. Now, the glory of God had been revealed to His people, as God had spoken to His prophets, yes, but not in this way. Not in this way. That which was held in the tabernacle or temple is in full display for the world to see through the Son of God. And so we find ourselves looking at the word dwell. The word dwell has its roots in the Hebrew for tabernacle or for tent. It's another word, another way of saying that the Lord Jesus came to tent with us, to tabernacle with us. With us, This is an allusion to the portable tabernacle in the wilderness. Jesus Christ, the Word, came and tabernacled with his creation. You know, I remember the first time that I, uh, I ever put up a tent. You're not going to believe this. The first time I ever put up a tent is when I went camping with Logan one day. First time as a grown man ever putting up a tent. Well, you know why? Because we just laid our backs on the dirt when we went out in the, in the country. We didn't have enough money to buy a tent. We didn't, you know, we, we went out to camp, we really roughed it. So the first time I ever put up a tent was when I went with the scouts with, with Logan and we, and, we, and we put up a tent. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, how's this thing go? And I, I remember, well, Logan knows how to do it and I don't, and I'm mind blown. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm putting up this tent, I'm going to freeze my rear off in this thing tonight. And over time, that same tent would wear and would tear and eventually would need replacing. A tent simply does not stand the test of time. It will get holes in it, the fabric will stretch, it will unravel, and given enough time under the elements, it will probably dry rot. The elements began to destroy it. But the one who came to tent, to tabernacle with us, he is everlasting. The glory of God inhabited the temporary dwelling place of the tabernacle in the wilderness and later in Solomon's great temple. But in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, we can dwell and abide with him Forever, you do know that this building is just a building, right? You're not going to find the presence of Jesus hovering over this communion table. You're not going to find the Holy Spirit hovering in the narthex as we go out to greet us. You're not going to find the Spirit hovering in one particular place in this building. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells you and me. But we can abide and dwell with him forever. When you and I think about the Lord Jesus in this way and how the Son came to dwell among us, we should immediately be drawn to his suffering. The purpose for the babe in the manger was for the cross. That is why it's so important to think of the incarnation, the babe in the manger, and the resurrection interchangeably. What a place of humility. Think about this, the place of humility and shame for our Lord to take upon himself the weakness of a human body. Humanity and humility to be tempted and then to overcome temptation, to suffer as he did. That's the everlasting gift. What is it? We find in Hebrews 2, 18, it says, For because he himself had suffered and tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, understand the word of the Lord here and the work of Jesus. I want you to hear the author of Hebrews in the next verse, or the next uh, chapter 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, Yet without sin. Now when we talk about Jesus dwelling among us, the word abide comes to mind. Abide would simply mean that we are living with him, walking with him. Our daily lives are wrapped up in who Jesus is. We are dwelling, living with him. He is close to us. We we are speaking about his incarnation when when we use that language. That he came to die so that we could draw close and be closer to him. Now here are a few instances, if we were to further our discussion in the gospel of John, here are a few places in the gospel according to John where he speaks of the purpose of the incarnation. Well, the incarnation, he came so that he could do the will of the Father. We find this in John 6 and verse 38, that our Lord came to do the will of God the Father, and to give glory to God. We also find that the Lord Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. The incarnation of the Lord was that so he could come and so that he could bear witness to truth. We read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus discloses truth. He tear downs, tears down all faulty interpretations of the law. You have heard it said this, I tell you this. So he came to, he came to speak truth and to be witness to that truth. He came to, as we read already, to bring light to darkness. Why do you think it is that men love their evil deeds much more than the light? Because the light exposes their evil and sinful deeds. Jesus came to expose such darkness. We find in verse nine and verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 39, that says that he came to bring true judgment. We live in a world today where any amount of judgment at all is looked down upon. Anybody living in sin uses these words automatically as if it is some type of escape all where they would say, who are you to judge me? You've heard it? I've heard it. Who are you to judge me? And you're right in the finality of all things. In the end of the age, when you stand before God, I can't stand next to Jesus and say, yeah, that's why that person didn't come to church. They were living in sin. Nope. I can't stand there next to Jesus with that authority but you and I can judge what is right what is wrong and what is wicked we have we have that right mode of judgment but only Jesus can judge truly to say you're living in sin because of this you're drawing away from me because of this so he came to bring true judgment He came to bring abundant life, as we see in John 10, 10. He is the good shepherd. He came to bring life abundant to us. It doesn't say happy, does it? Does the Bible promise that we will be happy or joyful? Does the Bible promise that we will be forever happy in this life or joyful in Him? I submit to you that Scripture teaches through and through that we will have joy through Him and abundant life in Him. So we no longer have to live in the shadow of the law, but to bask in the light of the sun, S-O-N. So the Lord Jesus, the purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of dwelling in flesh with us, is so that he can redeem us and then to be part of our lives. Not only did Jesus come to be with his people, But he also came and that we can access him as well. We have access. We have access to the King of Kings. Think about it. The creator of all this, we can approach him. We can approach him as co-heirs. We can pray to our Lord. In fact, he wants us to. He wants us to pursue him. He wants us to come near and draw near to Him. Jesus came to dwell among us to have relationship with His children. But how do relationships help us live a healthier life? Well, we can say, obviously, that the child of God ought to live a spiritual, healthy life. And by the way, when I use the word spiritual life, I'm not talking about Eastern. Uh, religions, I'm not talking about any other religion because in the real true sense of it, when a person says well are they spiritual, when a person who is a believer says, are they spiritual, they are talking about whether or not they are close and clean with Christ. Because, well there is a a devout Buddhist, he's spiritual. No, that's not spirituality. Oh, this person is, is a Muslim. They're spiritual. No, that's not true spirituality. To be truly spiritual in this sense is to draw close and clean to our to our lord and so he give us this opportunity to draw close to him to to help us to build a life of spiritual vitality for a child of god most certainly we can live a life of spiritual vitality as we are able to abide in jesus in fact he desires us to draw close to him you do know that don't you God wants you to pursue Him with every fiber of your being. He wants you to draw near to Him. And so many times we have things that keep us from pursuing Him. Things that have no eternal value at all. And I'm not going to sit up here and catalog them out. You know that's between you and God. I'm not going to sit up here and catalog the things that stand between you and God. But there are things in our lives that we call idols that keep us from pursuing Jesus. Distractions are many. And that is no excuse to dodge fellowship with Him. This past week I found myself reading medical journals of all things. And I come across an article called Homemade. That was... uh, Article back in 1989 from Dr. Bernie Siegel. And in this article, he had this to say of relationships. This is what he had to say about relationships. He said, single men are jailed more often. They earn less, they have more illnesses, and they die at a younger age than married men. Married men with cancer live 20% longer than single men with that same cancer. Women who have often, who have more close relationships than men survive longer with the same cancers. Married or not, he says, relationships keep us alive. Now keep that in mind. In a study of uh, elderly Hong Kong people and Hong Kong residents, Research found that those who spent more time cultivating social relationships had a significant drop in cortisol levels during the day, which could explain why positive relationships help us learn, help us to learn better, to stay healthier, and to live longer. Now, how do we appropriate that to being a Christ follower? We learn, we grow, And we remain healthy. Now, there's no promise in God's Word that that's going to make you live to 100 years old. But it stresses the point of spiritual vitality in Christ to draw close to to Him so that we might learn and that we might grow and that we might remain healthy, all the while drawing close to the incarnate deity who came to dwell among us. Maybe that's my challenge, is to draw close to him who desires to draw close to you. See, this is why pastors and leaders harp so much on the importance of Christ's followers fellowshipping one with another. That's why it's so important that we as the church draw close to one another. Now, if you were to look, in the book of Genesis, and follow it all the way through the Bible, we will find that God has created human beings with a certain dignity. The Bible tells us that we were created in His image and in His likeness. And if we follow this trail logically through Scripture, we will find that God created us as people who need relationships. We need community, and we need each other. Do you believe that? We need each other, and we certainly need to draw close to Jesus. Maybe that is my challenge, our challenge, going into a new year even, to draw close to pursue Him like we never have before. Again, the Word became flesh, dwelled among us, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. Would you pray with me?